Um, before we um, get, get started, just to do a couple housekeeping things. So a lot of what you're going to hear tonight um, comes really a lot through these, these resources I'm about to show you here in, in a couple of minutes. So um, I've tried to put some application and thinking through things, but a lot of what you, tonight you're going to hear is the synthesis of like all of these things that I've, just, I've worked through. So I want to put them before you now to know these resources will be up here afterward. If you want to come look at them, talk to me about them. There's just other stuff, and there's some audio that I listened to and those sorts of things. So just come and talk to me afterwards. So I put before you a couple of books. One is by Andreas Kostenberger called God, Marriage, and Family. Um, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal resource. Um, today in the culture that we live in, um, where you're going to see here in a little bit just the idea of sexuality and how it's just an, an open field with no, no truth is the is what's put before us. This, this book by Kostenberger is just a phenomenal resource. I highly put that before you. This is actually the um, Gospel-Centered Marriage. This is the little booklet that we did for six weeks in our community group. Some of you guys might be doing it or have, have yet to do it or will be starting up here quickly. Um, and there's 14, 15 little, little snippet chapters in there, but there's the last like four or five chapters talks about that idea of sex. Um, how it works in marriage, what is the idea, what is the, the, I, the mindset that we're supposed to, to have when we come and talk about that subject matter. So especially the last portion of that book there. This is another go-to. This is probably, um, in my time at seminary, one of the, the classes that I did um, assigned this book by John Piper called This Momentary Marriage. I mean, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal resource. I would put it up there about as high as the Kostenberger one. The Kostenberger book tr- covers a bit more information um, obviously, you can tell by the thickness, but the way Piper writes and just sort of the, the way he brings big ideas down to a lower level, it's just a phenomenal resource, and it, it covers everything. I mean, from marriage um, to divorce to singleness, how are we supposed to view sex within marriage, and that it just runs the whole gamut of, of this idea of marriage and how it's a parable pointing forward to something, something bigger. An even, an even smaller book that really sort of um, that really impacts the Song of Solomon and all the various ideas that flow out of that by C.J. Mahaney is a book called Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God, What Every Christian Husband Needs to Know. And then there's a chapter in the back for wives. Again, really short, short read. Um, I mean, I blew through a handful of these chapters pretty quickly. Again, Mahaney writes very, very um, low level. Great big truths, just in a way that's real pithy and funny. If you ever heard him preach, that's really how he how he writes. So I recommend that for you as well. Um, these two, um, CCF is the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. So guys like Ed Welch, um, David Pallison, Paul Tripp. If you've heard these names, these guys are associated with this. Christian Counseling Foundation, and they just have a myriad of these booklets. I mean, everything from adoption to what happens when the money runs out to um, how do I know when I need to start dating and all those sorts of things to money to life, and one of them revolves around the area of sexuality. And so these two are by David Powelson. One, Sexual Addiction, Freedom from Compulsive Behavior, and another one is Breaking the Addictive Cycle, where it's not so much related on sexuality, but this idea of um, how our, um, the way God has wired in us, we're, it's easy for us to make good things that God's given from, from anything, from relationships to food to sex to power to money and how we become addicted to these things. They become idols. And so I put that before you as well. In the footnotes you'll see tonight, um, again, one of the um, main things that really informed how um, I'm going to think and teach tonight comes from a podcast by Tim Keller where he broke out from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 
um, the area where Jesus covers the idea of lust. And Tim Keller does a 35-minute sermon that is just revolutionary. Um, I put it down in there in the footnotes, the link to go find that on the Redeemer podcast, but I'd highly recommend. That's 35 minutes of your life that you've just got to spend. So all of those things are synthesized into, into this. So tonight we're going to talk about biblical sexuality. Um, notice that we're describing it as biblical. It's not just merely sexuality. Um, the world offers us a picture of sexuality, but what we're wanting to do is come tonight and go, what does the Bible have to say about this? Does the Bible say anything? Obviously the argument is um, the Bible does say something about this. So then the question is, like, what does it say? Um, so admittedly this is a bit of an awkward subject, right? Um, these are the things you don't talk about in polite company. And then to come to church and hear your pastor, of all people, talk about sex. You know, that's like how uncomfortable is that, you know? Um, just again, there, there's not going to be any breakouts tonight between teaching points. So the, the, the bit of the mo- model that we've been having is teach a little bit, break out, chew on the subject matter, come back, teach a little bit, break out, that kind of thing. We're just not going to do that tonight just for... Again, acknowledging the awkwardness of it, you know, I mean, it's just sort of like, I don't know, you're talking about sex with other married people, and it's just like, I don't even really know you, and here we are talking about, you know, sexual intimacy and all this sort of stuff, so it's like, what's that about? That just could be awkward. So instead of just having people stare at each other and say nothing for 10 minutes, we're just going to forego that, and I think the idea what we're going to do is we're going to shoot for a Q&A along the way. And I realize that like, that might be j- just as awkward, but hopefully, hopefully not. Um, I think the idea will be talk a little bit and then just go, okay, does, do you guys just need some further explanation? Because admittedly, some of the stuff we're going to be talking about tonight just might be building new categories for you. Um, I know growing up in the church, I mean, there was basically no categories built for me around the idea of sexuality. Healthy categories, I should say. There were categories built, but as you'll see here in a little bit, learned the wrong way. And so let this be a time of going just honesty, you know. Um, I think... Um, uh, Q&A along the way or even at the end or even if it's just spark something, write it down. Um, obviously, um, a phone call, my door is always open at the house. If it just spurs further, further conversation among you, your spouse, you at an individual level, please, please know that don't just walk out of here doing nothing. Right? The hope is that the Holy Spirit will take this and, and implant it. So you go to the movies and you get the uh, little green screen that pops up, right? G. PG, PG-13, so I'm not going to say this is rated R because that might be, um, you know, imply, carry some extra baggage, but tonight there's a very good chance, a, more, a better than likely chance that you're going to hear certain words like sexual climax, orgasm, vagina, clitoris, penis, breasts, things like that, and it's not to be scant- scandalous, it's not meant to be provocative, it's not meant to be tan- tantalizing, I'm not using, trying to use these words so that we can you know, ooh, you know, ooh, this is sort of, ooh, what, are, what are we listening to, you know? I mean, they're trying to be somehow pornographic in our language. That's, that's not the goal at all. The goal is to try to connect something that's a very real-world experience for us. For the married couples in here, there's my, my operating assumption is that, is that we're having sex as married couples because God says we're supposed to be. For the singles in here who are not in this marriage relationship, I think the goal is that you will be married one day and having, having sex. So the idea is to try to connect words that we all know and that we all have a category for and then try to mesh them with what the Bible says, okay? So as we use, we're using these words, and you hear me use these words tonight, it's not meant, again, to be, to be something sort of, sort of scandalous or to be pornographic in our language, um, to be um, somehow, to act in a way that, to where we 
um, are causing people to say things about Delta Church, but it's really an attempt to use real world real words that connect the Bible to our to our experiences. Okay, so hopefully you have two documents in front of you. There should be a little three-page front and back one that just starts off with biblical sexuality at the top. And then at the very end, there's a, um, a photocopy of a um, book. It's actually two pages out of that Kostenberger book that we'll, we'll probably just wrap up with. Um, we're going to go there. I'm going to say something about the, the general gist of what's said there and put that before you. And that can be topic for conversation as you, as you go from there. But there's just no way to say everything that could be said. So just part of it was give it to you guys um, that way. So look at your um, paper there, Introduction. David Pallison says this, God intended sex to be an expression of marital love and intimacy between one man and one woman for their lifetime. God intended sex to be an expression of marital love and intimacy between one man and one woman for their lifetime. So when you look in your piece of paper there, Christians need a robust biblical framework for sexuality. Right? Marriage is a creation institution, and one of God's good gifts to be experienced in this institution is sex. We've, we've talked about this some, even just when we've been working through 1 Peter, right? 1 Peter applies chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 to these creational institutions, this idea of government, this idea of work, this idea of marriage. It's Peter rightly recognizing, yes, God made things. He made tree, and he, he made wood. He, he, he made the material that gives us paper, and he, he made animals. But he also created these ideas, these spheres that we live in, and we, we move and we breathe in. And one of them is, is marriage, and we have to have that as a category. Marriage is a creation institution. We, we see God create this relational institution back in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. And one of God's good gifts to be had, to be experienced within this relational institution called marriage is sex. And so what we, what we need to understand is we, we don't come to the, the marriage covenant talking about sexuality, sex between one husband and one wife with sort of like this, oh man, yeah, I guess it has to be done. And so we just sort of like give ourselves over to like this idea of just having bad sex forever. Or even just okay sex. But when you read scripture, I think the idea that comes to us is like God himself, instituted by God himself, he puts forward this idea of like it is possible and good and right and a thing to be desired for a husband and a wife to have like really, really, really good sex. Like that's not something to be shameful about. Like that is is the way God designed it to be. God's not disgusted with a husband and a wife who who have good sex. Look at that next point there. Christians live in a culture that proposes counter-biblical, oppositional, or even weak frameworks for sexuality. Right? My argument here tonight is we need a biblical framework for sexuality because you guys are bumping into frameworks for how we view sex everywhere, from conversations in the workplace to in high school when you're in the locker room for guys to girls whenever they're talking with the other girlfriends at work to music, to movies, to shows, everybody has a worldview, an ideology, a way that they're thinking about sex, and they push this thing forward, whether explicitly or, or implicitly. Three, three counter-biblical opposition or weak frameworks for sexuality are, one of them is a postmodern framework. Postmodern carries this idea of We've moved beyond the modern, the empirical, the scientific to this idea that there really is no absolute truth. And so when we say there is no absolute truth, what we're 
implying there as in a postmodern mindset is that really there is no God. God is not the objective rule and source of all things true. So the postmodern framework, when it views sexuality through this, says something like this. There is no God, therefore do what feels good. If it feels good, do it. There's no right or wrong. If you want to have sex with multiple women, go for it. If you as a, a woman want to manipulate your body to, to, to get sex from men, go for it. If a man wants to be with a man, if a woman wants to be with a woman, if a woman wants to somehow become a man, if a man wants to become I mean, and there's the myriad of ways that this sexuality spins out of control, we get there very quickly the moment you say there is no God, there is no objective truth. No God, do what feels good. Another framework that you might bump into is this one I I called autonomous framework. That word autonomous, you divide that in half. It comes from two two Greek words, autos, which means self, and nomos, which means law. It's a self-law. You are in charge of you. You're God. You're the king. You're the creator. You rule the way that you think. You don't, definitely there is no God, and it's not even, and it might even be the mindset of, I'm not even really going to look around at the culture around me. I'm just going to do what's right. I'm in charge of me. Therefore, I decide what is good. If I want to do this, you have no bearing on the way, the way that I ought to think, especially about sexuality. I would say those are counter-biblical or oppositional. The reason I put that weak framework is this, is because some of us might even have a religious framework. Um, notice I'm saying not biblical framework, but a religious framework where, where somehow we carry this idea, yes, sex is supposed to happen between a husband and a wife, um, but it's been tainted, right? So it's one of these things that we sort of have to just put up with. Um, yeah, it may have been awesome for Adam and Eve, but like when Genesis 3 came around, then all of a sudden it just, like, it just got dumped on its head, and now it's, it's tainted, it's impure, it's, it's polluted. Look at all the different ways that we, we scan the culture, and we see all this stuff just completely out of whack, right? And what we do is go, well, this is one of the things we just have to begrudgingly put up with. It, there's, surely there's no way that I can enjoy this God-created thing because, because sin has tainted it. So a religious framework might say something like this, sin has tainted sex, therefore it's it's something just to merely be endured, something that we should just avoid. And they try to argue maybe from like a Genesis 1, 2, and 3 framework. Well, I'm going to argue that we need something better. It's Our view of sex can be skewed by prior experiences. Okay, this needs to be said in the introduction. Our view of sex can be skewed by prior experiences. So we may bump into these various frameworks that are trying to pull us away from a biblical view but what we also need to know is that we have all experienced something revolving around the world of sex, surely. Right? None of us live in a vacuum. We live in a culture. We live in a world. You've had conversations. Um, one way that um, you might have a skewed view of sex by prior experiences is just maybe you've learned sex the wrong way. Right? So th- this, is, this is my experience of how, how I would learn sex. And I wouldn't say the, the wrong way. Um, necessarily, I mean, I guess you could argue the wrong way, but it would be something along the, the mindset of even just not in a full, robust way. Like, right? So, like, when women's, like, when, when I as a little boy growing up started going, like, right, it happens in a little boy's life where eventually girls have cooties and all of a sudden it's like, ooh, like, I might want one of those, you know? Like, you, that switch happens somewhere with a boy. And when that happened with me, it's like, I need to learn about this. So I can't talk to dad because dad doesn't talk about this kind of stuff. It's too embarrassing to talk about with moms. What do you do? 
you know, you go to the library and try to find the books, right? And so there I was in the Carrollton Library, you know, trying to find a book on sex and ask my mom if I can check it out, that kind of thing, right? Because I'm trying to learn and there's pictures and it's like, man, I, you know, so it's like, well, I mean, I mean, it's not bad, right? But I mean, I would argue that there's probably a better way of, of going about and doing this, right? The other, other one, um, other idea could be something along this, like, right? So I grew up in the age of the internet, So I grew up in the age of the internet, as most of us millennials did. There was a time I can remember when the internet was not, right? But now we have the internet. And so for me, unfortunately, one of my first introductions to sexuality was this. The guy who printed off the the pornographic picture and brought it into... Oh, okay. I think that's good. So it's the guy who brought the pornographic picture into the locker room of the high school. And is passing it around. It's like, whoa, what is that? Then all of a sudden, boom, there it is. Like, I'm just exposed to a framework, right? And there it is. Another way that we can learn sex the wrong way, um, and I would even argue it can be done in such a way that was meant to be good, but it just carries some, some baggage that, that might come with it, is growing up in the church, the idea of true love waits. How many, I don't know how many of you guys went through true love waits. And it's a great program, but I think there was something that sort of spun out of that that really may not have been because really what it was is like, I know you want to have sex. Sex is awesome. And it's like, believe me, sex is phenomenal. But like, it's sort of like, wait, hold, wait, don't, don't go there. And it's always like basically sex couched in the negative. Then all of a sudden it's like when you get married, then all of a sudden it's great. And I remember going like, I'm getting married. I'm like, I'm 21. Like I've basically been told sex is like not kosher my whole life. And it's like, what exactly is going on? Like all of a sudden, like I'm going to walk down and I'm going to say something. Then all of a sudden, like it's just good. It's legit. So it's like, they never really quite explained. Like it was like just one side of it. Like don't do it, which was sort of explained well, but it was never explained like, why do you want to do it so bad, John? And so they never quite fully flesh that out. And so here I am standing on the marriage day going, I'm about to go do something. It's like I've been wanting to do for a while, but it's like, I don't know, like what, what just happened? Like what just all of a sudden happened to make this legit? You know, no one couched all this in a biblical framework for me. Another way that we can be skewed in our experience is this sex taught the wrong way. Um, so, uh, so we can learn in a different way, but maybe you just sat under somebody and like, I don't, I don't know how many of you, you women. So I don't think this is a scandalous question to ask, but how many of you guys, before women, before you had, um, before you got married, had your mom or some sort of mom-like figure in your life basically give you, like, you know, your husband that you're about to marry, like, either the day of the wedding or the night before or the week before, like, gave you, like, some sort of talk, like, your husband's going to be horny, he's going to have sex all the time, and you're just basically going to have to endure with it. Maybe it was so, uh, my question is this, how many of you guys received something from a mom or a mom-like figure, but it was couched in the negative, Show of hands? Few? How many of you even actually received something like that, but it was couched in the positive? That's what I'm, I guess, more curious. Not from a mom figure, right? Okay. But somebody did. I don't know who said that, not from a mom figure, but, but, it, but it was couched like this is going to be an okay thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so look at that quote there. So, and so this was actually like a mindset, right, where people were teaching other people, like, don't, like, this isn't like a real good thing. So Ruth Smithers, quoted in that book, this comes from that C.J. Mahaney book. She wrote a book in 1894 called Instruction and Advice for Young Brides. Look at that quote there. 
She says this, To the sensitive young woman who has had the benefits of proper upbringing, the wedding day is ironically both the happiest and the most terrifying day of her life. So I tried to underline all these things. Like She's just completely like blowing this thing out of the water. Like, right? like any bride who reads this is going to come away with like such a negative view. Right? It's the most terrifying day of her life. On the positive side, there is the wedding itself in which the bride is the central attraction in a beautiful and inspiring ceremony symbolizing her triumph and securing a male to provide for her all her needs for the rest of her life. On the negative side, another, you know, ooh, negative side, there's the wedding night during which the bride must, quote, pay the piper, so to speak, by facing for the first time the terrible experience of sex. At this point, dear reader, let me concede one shocking truth. Some young women actually anticipate the wedding night ordeal with curiosity and pleasure. Beware such an attitude. A selfish and sensual husband can easily take advantage of such a bride. And this is the thing that just blew me away. One cardinal rule of marriage should never be forgotten. This is her advice to young brides. Give little, give seldom, and above all, give grudgingly. Otherwise, what could have been a proper marriage could become an orgy of sexual lust. It's like, man, well, first off, my first thought is like, good night, poor Mr. Smithers, man. Like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm feeling sorry for this brother already, man. He's long dead, man. He was floating around in like the late 1800s, you know. I'm like, oh, man, that brother, man. Because what I, part of the other quote I didn't put on there, basically she starts laying out rules about how you can wean your husband off sex about the year 10 toward the point where he'll just sort of have to linger around because of just sort of like duty and love for the family. Like, right, this is the advice. So it's like, man, that's could be one way you have a skewed view of sex. If someone comes to you and goes, this is a terrible, this is awful, like, don't even think about it. Give, what does she say? Give little, give seldom, give, give grudgingly. The third way that we can have a skewed experience of sex is just that we've experienced it the wrong way, right? And we reap the negative consequences of sexual sin. So, I mean, just in the world that we live in, man, you just can't discount this. Um, some of us are probably at some point in time, um, are, we're now reaping the negative consequences of sexual sin because we are a willing participant in something that was not biblically prescribed. Whether that was having sex outside of marriage, whether that's maybe even committing adultery, whether that's having sex with a prostitute or whatever it is. Like we made a bonehead move and we're reaping the own, our own consequences for our sin. The other way is that we can have a negative view of sex is just maybe that we're reaping negative consequences of sexual sin because someone made us a victim. Like why we were abused, sexually, sexually abused. That, that's an event that's happened. Like you can't just discount that. Right? That shapes the way you think about it, whether it's willingly or, or unwillingly. So tonight our goal isn't necessarily to talk about that, but the side note I wanted to give is like, right, there's just no situation in your life that's beyond the grace, the grace of God. Right, if you look down at that footnote, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 15, talks about grace and how the Apostle Paul, who was basically a, a Christian, or he was a terrorist, terrorizing Christians, killing people, putting them to death, he comes to the point where he says, listen, look, look, at, look at my life. God basically poured out mountains of grace, mountains of mercy upon me. If he can save me, he can save you. No situation is beyond the point of God's, the God's grace. So I want to give you that word of hope, but I also want to do is, you know, put that as a category. We experience sex the wrong way because of either being a willing participant in something we ought not to have been or we were victimized by somebody doing something to us. All that to say is we need a vision for healthy biblical sexuality. We need a vision for healthy biblical sexuality. We've got frameworks and we have experiences that are so ready to skew us from what the Bible says. So look at that next area, biblical sexuality. We'll go through this and we'll, we'll, give, a, we'll give a bit of a break for, for any questions I might have. Daniel Aiken says this, Sex, as God designed it, is good, 
exciting, intoxicating, powerful, living, unifying. The one flesh relationship is the most intense physical intimacy and the deepest spiritual unity possible between a husband and wife. It's a great quote to, to cap off where, where we're about ready to go because basically what I want to do is go, what does the Bible say about sex right now? What's our confession as believers? Is God sort of frowned upon it? Is God sort of like, man, I just didn't really want to, but I had to, and he just sort of like, you know, grumbles about it? Or is God fired up about sex? Does God care about sex? My argument is God cares about sex. He gave us a whole stinking book about it, the Song of Solomon. You find it all over the book of Proverbs. You see it in the Genesis account where God instituted, created that institution called marriage, and you see a husband and a wife standing before God naked. They're going to be having sex because they're having children very quickly, Genesis chapter 4. So, right, so there's this whole world like this. This isn't a foreign concept to God, okay? So what does the Bible say? What is, the, what is our confession? What's a theological confession? How, what do we come to the Bible and see about biblical sexuality. Look there first. God is the creator of sex. The idea of nakedness and sexual intimacy within marriage flows from the God who created Adam and Eve. God looks upon human sexuality as good. Genesis 1, 31, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was good. He's talking about a naked man and a naked woman in part of this. This is the cap to Genesis chapter 1. He created everything. Then he created a man created the woman. He says it's all good. Then we spin back a little bit and go, now let me really unpack for you what happened when God created Adam and Eve, and you get Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. It's still good. When he's making man, when he's making, making woman the way that we know God, God made them. So sex is for procreation. This is something that we need to have as a biblical category. Genesis 1, 27, 28, God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So God is good with human sexuality. God is good with a husband and a wife having sex. And one of the good ways that we see this is this idea, be fruitful, multiply, have, have children. You have children by having sex. So this is a category that we need to have. Another one is this. This idea is sex is relational. Genesis 2, 24, and that should be 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. So this idea of becoming one flesh is at least sexual. I'm going to argue later it's a whole lot more, but it is at least this. When a man and a woman get married, enter into that relational sphere called marriage, that covenant of marriage, one of the things God says ought to be happening is this, is sex. It's for a husband and a wife to relate. It's how two different people become one, how they become um, um, what uh, Aiken said here. They, have, they enter into this intoxicating, this unifying, this deepening um, act that draws them close together, and they do this as, as, they are, as they are naked. So not only is God the creator of sex, but God is the designer of sex. And I'm putting a little bit of a nuance on that word, right? It sounds like I'm saying the same thing, design, creator. But when I'm giving that idea of God is the creator of sex, it's just this idea that this is a category that God has of thinking. A husband and a wife are to be doing this. It's okay for them to be having sex. But when it comes to God as the designer of sex, it's a little bit more nuanced where the idea I want to put here is the human anatomy that relates to sexuality finds its origins in God himself. Right? Sex is not the devil's design. 
So when the end of Genesis chapter 2, Adam's there. He's just named all the animals. He's looking around, and he's like, oh, God, there's nobody that looks like me. And he's like, that's right. It's not good for man to be alone. So what's he do? Adam goes down, pulls out the rib, creates woman from man's rib. So here's, here's what did not happen. God puts Adam down, takes the rib out of Adam's side, goes over and fashions the woman, and then he hears something rustling in the reeves behind him. He turns around and looks, and all of a sudden there's Adam with a penis on him, and then the Satan's over there laughing. <laughs> I got one in on God. And he's like, no, I didn't mean to do that. And he turned back around, and there he was. And then and while he's looking at Adam, somehow Satan came around, the serpent came around, and what he did was put some breasts and a vagina on, on Eve. And he's like, oh, no, man, everything's out of control. I don't know what I'm going to do now. Like, it's, no, 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 that's not what happened. Like, God intentionally created the anatomy of a male to be a certain way. The anatomy of a female to be a certain way. Like there's certain organs of our bodies that really serve no other purpose other than a sexual function. Which gives us a category like God wasn't just creating extraneous material. Like he created something to be used in a very specific way. Like this is a category for God. Sex is not the devil's, the devil's design. And you see this being promoted in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 through 19, there in your, in your notes. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water is in the streets? No. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of her youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So for guys, it's like, this is a win, right? It's like, this is the kind of verse, like, you know, most guys are like, man, I'm not in the Bible, bro. Like, I can't, I can't do scripture memory. It's like, man, you're just not reading the good parts, man. Like, there, there, there's a part that pays off to go, like, if you want to memorize any sort of scripture, it's like, Proverbs chapter 5, baby, I'm just being biblical. You know, like, I'm just, I love, the, I love Proverbs chapter 5, you know? Like, this is good. Like, this is God. Like, right? Because this is where a doctrine of Scripture comes in. So what we don't say is somehow Proverbs 5, 15 through 19 was the uninspired portion of of God's Word. The doctrine of Scripture says this. Everything within Genesis to Revelation comes from the Holy Spirit inspiring writers to write this. So that means God is legit with men, husbands, being all about the physical anatomy of their wives' bodies. Like, that's a good thing. God is the originator of sexual desire. The desire to have sex is God-given and good. The desire to be sexually intimate with a member of the opposite sex is planted within us by God himself, and it is meant to be experienced within the institution of marriage. So these desires that we have, right? So it's not just enough to say God is the creator of sex, um, God is the designer of sex, but then somehow like this desire that we have, because like, right, that's sort of my whole beef with the true love waits thing, because it never really quite addressed that for me, at least as a young man, was this. It never really came along and said, man, listen, I know there's something within you, like just as much as you have the desire to eat, just as much as you have the desire to look upon things beautiful, you have this God-given DNA-wired desire to eat, to drink. Just as much as you and I have a God-given wired DNA within us desire to have sex. But the true love waits came along and said, bro, you've got to squash that. Never really gave a reason why. Then just basically said, wait, hopefully you can hold out until your marriage day. Then you, can, then you can have at it. And it's like, it never quite helped me wrestle with this idea of like, is this good? Like, should I not be having this desire? 
Like right now, am I basically supposed to throw a toggle switch and like desire no sex until like on my wedding day where I wake up, my head comes off the pillow, and I'm like, whoop, whoop. you know, I pop the toggle switch. Okay, all of a sudden I have sexual desire, and good thing it's going to be toward this woman. There you go. But no, that's not the way it is. So it's okay to have this. This isn't, this isn't sin to have sexual desire. Now, the way that you might flush out the sexual desire could become sin, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But just this idea of having the desire, a sexual desire, it's not a bad thing. Again, Song of Solomon, you can see that there, the desire to kiss. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. One, two, let him kiss me with the kisses of my mouth. The desire to touch and caress. Song of Solomon 7, 6 to 9. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all of your delights. So this, is the, so this is what blows me away, right? Like, I mean, this is just, I mean, it's, it's sort of couching poetic language, but I mean, this is just barefaced exuberance in King Solomon talking about his naked, naked wife. How beautiful and pleasant you are. So this is King Solomon talking about the he, talking to the she of Song of Solomon. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all of your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. It's like, oh, there's really not any way to, to get, get around that one right there, right? I mean, he's talking about, he's looking at his, his wife who is naked, and he's making this illustration. He says, you look like a tree. Your breasts look like palm tree. Look, the fruit looks like coconuts on this palm tree. I'm going to climb up, and I'm going to lay hold of the fruit. It's like, okay, mm, you know. I mean, again, most guys are like, man, the Bible. I'm like, man, dude, you're just not reading the right portions, you know. Like, this stuff's good. Like, the desire to touch and caress, like, nowhere in the Song of Solomon, like, when he says this, you don't see the verse 10, chapter 7, verse 10 isn't, and God was really bummed out. I can't believe Solomon is thinking this way. Like, you don't get that as a category. Even desire for sex itself, and you can read that there in Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Questions? Any thoughts? Anything that you need, need unpacked? Hopefully, that would be pretty straightforward. Um, Because all we've talked about is wrong frameworks. The Bible gives us a healthy, good, right framework. Any thoughts? Questions? Look at that next section there. So if you turn the page and you look at page 4, what you're going to see is another, another thing says, a vision for a healthy biblical sexuality. And so before I went there, I, won't, I wanted to give like, like a pre-idea to get us there. And it's this. I don't, I don't know what you want to call it, but I call it like a theological grid. This idea of having a confession where we take these truths that we confess, we synthesize them into a framework, into a grid, into a matrix, into a way that we're to view and go do something. Right? We can have a theological confession. God says this about sex. That theological confession is meant to bring us to a place where we go, okay, what exactly has God said about sexuality? Then we're supposed to build a framework like a house, put those on like lenses of glass, and we're supposed to look through this theology, these things that God has said about sex, so then that when you as a husband and a wife, when two spouses come together and they have sex, then all of a sudden it's, it's couched in a way that is rooted biblically, right? Look at that quote by, by Kostenberger, because what you're going to get tonight is, very little of the, the what about sex, and we're going to get more to the why. And that's where we're basically turning the corner. We're going to get to the why. The why, I'm going to argue, is that idea of vision there. So, so track with me. Andres Kostenberger, that, that quote there. 
In most cases, even for Christians, the what of sex garners the lion's share attention while the why of sex is regularly neglected, right? So do you see what he's talking about here? Like almost any Christian book, any book about sex, if you're in the checkout counter looking at the cosmopolitan, like what is almost always sex couched in? It's in the what? Here's 10 techniques to make your husband blow his lid. Where the, if you want to get your wife to that place where she's having sexual climax, here's the, here's the five techniques that you need to do to your wife. Sex is almost always couched in the what. Like just do this, do this practice, do these things, and then it's almost like a formula and you plug it in. Do this, do this, boop, 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 and now it comes out as just mind-blowing, mind-blowing sex. But the Bible doesn't ever really talk about sex like that. The Bible talks about sex this way. Have a biblical framework for it, and we're going to get there later, then it's almost like it leaves the what alone. There are certain prohibitions. We're going to get to those later. But the Bible's never really like, if you want to have mind-blowing sex, make sure you have sex in this sort of sex position. Like, the Bible never talks about it that way. But it almost always does. It says, here's a framework. Here's a lens. Here's a view. You need to think about it this way. And if you're operating within the realms of sex as a covenant good, then, brother and sister, have at it. Go for it. It'll be phenomenal. Okay, so here's where, here's where we're going. The what's of sex garners the lion's share of attention while the why of sex is regularly neglected. As a result, there is no lack of non-Christian and Christian resources on sex and how to have better sex while there is a relative dearth on conscious Christian reflection on the deeper meaning of and purpose for sex. This lack of proper theological grounding comes at a cost. The loss of a more profound, heartfelt union between those engaging in sex, including Christian couples. So what are we to do with this information? Well, my my argument is that most of us, all believers in general, but those of us are here tonight listening to this, will fall on this continuum somewhere. Like this continuum of confession, vision, vision practice. Right, so according to Kostenberger, almost everything you read, whether Christian or non-Christian, focuses specifically on practice. Have sex. Do sex. Have sex in this way. Don't have sex in this way. Do this certain thing. Don't do this certain thing. Ergo, you will have phenomenal sex. Almost always practice focuses on practice. But on this continuum, arguing as a believer, how are believers, where are we supposed to fall out in this continuum? I suppose we could fall on this, that there's not even any practice going on within the marriage unit between the husband and between the wife. You're married, you're not having sex. The Bible just says that's not healthy. You can go read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's like, man, listen, you fight off Satan by having regular, regular intercourse, regular sex as a husband and wife. And there's a whole big theological thing that Paul pushes forward. So if you find yourself in that place where like you're just not, you're married, you're not even having sex, it's like, that's just not healthy. You don't need to be there. My assumption is most of us are at least here at this next stage. We're at the practice stage where you're married and you're having sex, but there's no framework for right and wrong or God's view on sex. Like, you're doing it, you're having sex, but if you were to come up like, why are you doing certain things, why are you not, not doing certain things? Like, what, is, what does the Bible say about this, what does the Bible say about this? Is this permissible or is this not permissible? These sorts of things, you really just sort of do one of these numbers. Shoulder shrug, palms up. You're like, man, I don't know. We're doing it, but we don't have any framework. The next best thing might be is this, is that you might have a confession 
and a practice. You know what Scripture says. You have a theological confession. You can say, I understand these things about sex. You can go through and you can go through this little section that we just did in our notes on biblical sexuality. You can look at Proverbs 5 and you can look at Song of Solomon. You can go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and say, I see God saying these sorts of things. You can confess this, but you don't have a way to view, synthesize all this stuff that God says about sex into what does it actually mean in practice for you as a husband and for you as a wife. So you know what Scripture says, but it doesn't affect practice. So how is it supposed to look? And this is where we're going to, and this is what we'll, we'll focus on for the rest of our time. How is it supposed to look? My argument's going to be like this, is that we're meant to have a confession. We as believers, it's our obligation to know what Scripture says about sex, just as you're obligated to know what Scripture says about prayer, what it says about fasting, what it says about giving, what it says about tithing, what it says about church and pastors and elders and deacons and your role and being led by the Spirit and how does, I mean, everything, right? It's our obligation as believers to go, God has spoken, God has revealed himself, God has spoken in certain ways. We are called to be a people of the word and the category of sex is one of those. Confession, know what scripture says about sex. Then what we're meant to do is synthesize this stuff down to a vision. How do I take when I know what God says, build it into a framework like a house so I can live in this world of what God says about sex, a framework rooted in Scripture that then informs how we think about sex so that when we go and we practice and we have sex between a husband and a wife, it's, it's built within a framework, right? Confession, vision, practice. So the remainder of our time is going to be on that middle part. What is a healthy vision? What is a vision for a healthy biblical sexuality? What is a vision for a healthy biblical sexuality? There's going to be three points. My argument's going to be is that to have a good way to synthesize what God says about sex, part of what we, what we talked on there in that section, is you need to see that sex is covenantal, sex is sacramental, and sex is eschatological. Sex is covenantal, sex is sacramental, sex is eschatological. And I realize probably two out of those three words, you're like, I have no idea, and I'm struggling with the first, which is covenantal. We will explain them, but what I'm trying to say is these are three categories, three mindsets that I'm going to argue that we as believers, single or married, need to adopt so that as we engage in the practice of sexual intercourse, husband and wife, we have a healthy biblical framework rooted in what God says about, about sex. So, first... Sex is covenantal. Sex is covenantal. So when we say sex is covenantal, really what it's doing is it's battling that idea of contractual versus covenantal. Contract versus covenant. That's consumer mentality versus covenant mentality. And and really what this is is a bit of a recap of what, what Tom was arguing for when he said marriage is to be rooted in this idea of covenant. All right, look on your paper there. When we say that, a relationship, a marriage, or sex can, can be consumeristic, can be contractual. What we're saying is this. It's this mindset. It's this way of thinking. If I'm going to have sex in a consumeristic way, I say this. You adjust to me because my needs are more important than the relationship. You adjust to me because my needs are more important than the relationship. Right? We, re- we relate to vendors this way all the time. I am in a contract with AT&T. My needs, I feel, are very important. You give me a good price, a certain amount of text messages, a certain amount of data, and if you can't give me a good price for the things that I need, 
I'm going to break this relationship. Oh, Verizon can give me the same, if not better, for cheaper? Well, then I'm out. Right? A contractual, a consumer relationship says this. You need to adjust to me. You need to adjust to my needs because my needs are more important than the relationship. The tie that binds are my needs. If you are not meeting my needs, then I'm out of here. Like that's, that's a vendor relationship, a consumer relationship. If I can get my needs met somewhere else, I'm going to go there. But a covenant relationship says this. The idea of covenant thinks this way. Covenant in regards to relationship will have this heart attitude. I will adjust to you because I have made a promise and the relationship is more important than my needs. See the difference there? Covenant consumer relationship says the relationship that we're in, it means absolutely nothing. Only as long as you can meet me and only as long as you can adjust to me. Only as long as you can meet my needs. If you can't meet my needs, if you can't adjust to me, I'm out of here. Covenant says this. I've come into this relationship, and the tie that binds is this. I've made a promise to you for better or for worse, for sick or for poor, or for sick or for, um, for healthy, for rich or for poor. It, d- it doesn't matter what might go on around here, but I am in this because I made a promise with you, and I'm going to seek to adjust to you. I'm going to seek to serve you because I made a promise to do this. The relationship that we've entered into is more important than my needs. Now, I wrote a whoops in here because I think you have sort of like a dash and a, sen- and a sentence that just sort of trails off into nowhere. That was me forgetting to erase something. So you can skip that. I think it says like spouses relate to one and, and then there's just nothing. So that's my bad. That's just a bit of a typo there. I think there's another one down there <laughs> later on where instead of saying a covenant view of sex, I say a convent view of sex, which is sort of ironic um, when you think about it. Um, but that, again, that is a typo as well. So if you see more, my, my bad. So... Next bolded sentence, marriage is covenantal and sex is a covenantal good, right? Armed with these definitions of a consumer relationship and a covenant relationship, we can draw this conclusion because marriage is covenantal because marriage, one man, one woman says this, I will adjust to you because I've made a promise and the relationship is more important than my needs, then we can come to this category of sex and say sex is a covenantal good. Sex is to be had within this covenant. So the idea of covenant informs how we view sex. What we don't say is marriage is covenantal, then all the stuff we do in marriage falls outside from underneath the umbrella of covenant. What we say is marriage is covenantal and everything that takes place within the marriage covenant runs through this grid of covenant. And this is especially true about sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife. So what does this mean negatively? One thing you can say is this, there's not to be any sex, no sex outside of a covenant. Or to be positive, you know, not to be put too much of a bummer. Positively, you can say this, sex only inside the covenant of marriage. See, a consumeristic view of sex views sex as an instrument of self-service. See, when you enter into a relationship with this mentality, a contractual, a consumeristic relationship, especially in the world of sex where you say, I'm entering into this relationship, my uh, obvious assumption is we're going to be having sex, But the mindset I'm bringing into it is you must adjust to my needs about sex. You must adjust to the way I think about sex. You must serve me so my needs are met, that you're bringing in a very poor view of sex. You're bringing in an unbiblical view of sex. Because a consumeristic view of sex views it as an instrument of self-service. I'm going to use sex in such a way to where you will serve me. So sex as a consumer good is a way to manipulate or be manipulated in a relationship. 
right? It's that whole, whole mentality. If you don't cut the mustard, if you don't meet what I'm needing, then I'm out of here. And so then what that forces the other person to do is go like, I need to be marketing, I need to be spinning, I need to be thinking about a way. It's no longer me serving you and you serving me, but it's me entering into this relational sphere going, I've got to perform, I've got to give out this good in such a way that I meet your need. And sex isn't meant to be spun that way. Sex isn't supposed to be a way where I, I try to use it to manipulate you and you manipulate me. Sex isn't supposed to be done that way. When you have a consumeristic view of sex, it's a constant marketing. You're always performing. You have to meet their need or they're out. And you're thinking the same way. And so, so that what you have are the clashes of people. Instead of a beautiful melding, instead of a two, beautiful two becoming one, all you have is a husband and a wife who are just constantly sort of like, you know, coming together, but they're like, like two magnets, right? When you try to push them together and they're just not quite, quite going together when, when the, the poles are the same. And it's like we're trying to mesh together, but you're constantly sort of like repelling off of each other because you're both saying, well, you have to serve me or I'm out of here. Or, no, you have to serve me or I'm out of here. No, you have to serve. And it's just this constant pulling and it's never a blending, a meshing, a, a, a coming together. But a covenant or a convent view of sex views it as an instrument of selfless service. A covenant view of sex views it as an instrument of selfless service. And what this does is it does at least two things. It creates a zone of security. It creates a place where you can be yourself, right? Because remember, in a covenant relationship, it's this. I come into the relationship. The husband comes into the relationship. The wife comes into the relationship says, I'm going to outdo you in honor. I'm going to outserve you. Whether it's good sex or bad sex, whether it's a good day or bad day, whether it's kids were good, kids weren't good, job was good, job wasn't good. I'm coming into this relationship, this, this moment of sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife. What I'm going to do is I'm not looking to go, what can I get out of it? But I'm looking, how can I pour out to serve you? How can I pour out to serve you? And that creates a zone of security because in, so, in, in that place, all of a sudden, the person that you're interacting with, your, your spouse, now it's no longer, is this person, person going to meet my needs? What, what do I have to do? Do I, need to, do I need to do something to keep them in? Do I need to perform? Do I need to market? Do I need to spend? But it comes a place where whew, you can relax. Because remember, if it, even if it's like you have sex or you don't have sex, maybe the husband wants it and the wife doesn't, and it's like, no, not tonight, then you, there's freedom for that. Right, because now it's all, all of a sudden, well, my relationship's going to crumble if I don't do this certain thing. It's no, because my relationship isn't built upon sex, and if you can meet my needs sexually. It's my relationship is rooted in a promise that I've made to you, whether we have good sex or bad sex, no sex, some sex. A covenant view of sex creates a zone of security, a place to be yourself. The relationship isn't based upon you meeting my needs. The second thing it does is it it's a freedom found in viewing sex as a covenant good. It frees you up to outdo one another in serving. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It frees you from fear of having to perform in order to keep the other spouse content in the relationship. So when you have sex, as sex is covenantal, as a framework, a vision, a synthesis of the of the stuff that God says about sex, it really helps us understand a lot of things, right? I'll say this and we'll, we'll pause here. It helps us understand that, this is a biblical word, it helps us understand things like this. Fornication is not, not right, sex before marriage. Why? Because it's not within the realm of covenant. Adultery is, is not right. It's sin. Because sex outside of marriage, adultery, because it's, 
you having sex with someone that you're not in covenant with. When you understand sex is covenantal, it helps you understand that fornication, adultery, because in these situations you are learning sex in a framework of consumerism. Because like, right, when you, when you come into a mindset of this, I am married to this woman, but I'm going to go and have sex over there with this woman. It becomes a way where you are now no longer viewing sex covenantally, but you're using it, viewing it consumeristically. I'm going to consume sex from this woman because you're, you're not going to out, try to outdo this woman in honor. What you're trying to do is get something for yourself. It's the same with fornication. You're not even in the marriage covenant. And what you're trying to do is, I'm, I'm, I need you to meet a need. I need you to bend toward me, to adjust to me, or I'm out of here. Pornography falls in the same category. Masturbation falls into this category. It uses sex as a consumer good. I mean, think about it. What you're doing is you're trying to get to the place of sexual climax, and you don't even have the other partner there. It's consumeristic in nature because by nature of just you being by yourself because you're doing what only ought to be done between a husband and a wife. And here you are as just a husband or here you are as just a wife viewing and doing these things, trying to reach that end, not through the avenue by by which God has, has presented it. Second, sex is sacramental. What is a sacrament? Sacrament is an external symbol of an invisible reality. You also might hear the words ordinance. We have two, Lord's Supper, baptism. Baptism is an external symbol of an inward reality. Lord's Supper is an external symbol of an inward reality. These are covenantal expressions. We express our covenant, our relationship with God through baptism, right? Does that make, does that make sense? When you go under the water, it's as if you're dying to sin. When you come up out of the water, it's you being born again, brought, brought to new life. It's an external symbol of an inward reality. It's covenantal expression. Same with the Lord's Supper. We say this all the time. When you come and you take of the bread and you come and take of the cup, it's an external symbol. It's something outwardly representing the inward reality that you have been born again by the precious blood of Jesus Christ by the breaking of his body. These are covenantal expressions. So to understand sex as sacramental is to have sex with integrity. What do we mean by this? To understand sex, to have a view of sex as sacramental is to have, is to have or view sex with integrity. Because, see, my argument is this. Sex is an outward expression of an inward reality. Sex between a husband and a wife is an outward expression of a deeper, richer fuller inward reality between a husband and a wife. A husband and a wife doing with their body what is true with the rest of their life. Sex is full physical disclosure that represents whole life disclosure. So when the Bible says in Genesis 2, 24 and 25, that a husband should leave his father and his mother, a wife will leave her father and her mother, and they come together, they will be naked, and these two shall become one. It's talking about sex. But this two becoming oneness is also emotionally 
communicatively, the way you talk, emotionally, the way you relate, the way you feel, spiritually, as you seek to lead, as you seek to submit. So when you have a view of sex as sacramental, what it is doing is saying this, I've given my life to you, you've given your life to me. I've given my life to you emotionally, spiritually, communicatively. You've given your life to me emotionally, spiritually, communicatively. And the way that we're going to represent this outwardly is this. Because you've given full disclosure to me in these areas, because you've given full disclosure to me in this area, the husband and wife come together, they get completely naked, they fully disclose their bodies to each other, and what it becomes is an external symbol of an inward reality. Just as I am fully and completely naked before you as the spouse, and it's vice versa backwards, what it is saying to the husband and wife under, under the umbrella of God is this. We are doing with our bodies, which, which that is true of the entirety of our life. Sex, as sacramental, is to have sex with integrity. The integrity issue is this, doing with your body that which is true of everything else of your life. So sex without integrity is sex outside of the covenant of marriage. So to have physical union without whole life union is a lack of integrity. You're taking, you're not giving. You are receiving and holding instead of serving. You are using sex as a consumer good. You are asking someone to do with their body what you are not doing with your life. It's you saying this, let's do physical disclosure without whole life disclosure. Right again, so, so this spins back really quick and helps us understand, so like why is the one night stand like just not kosher with God? It's this, because when you meet a girl at a bar and then you take her back to the apartment and you're having sex with her, you're doing something with your body that is not legit or true in the remotest way of anything else in your, in your, in your life. You're not communicatively in union with each other, spiritually, emotionally. And so here you are with your bodies giving full bodily disclosure, but it lacks integrity. There is no integration between with what you're doing with your bodies and everything else. So you're doing physical disclosure without whole life disclosure. It'd be the same as an unbeliever coming up here going, I need to be baptized. And we'd be like, bro, there's no integrity there. You want to do something externally that's not true internally in any way. Same with the Lord's Supper. Don't take partake of the Lord's Supper because you're externally doing something that is in no way even remotely true of what's going on in, internally in the internal reality. And it's the same with sex. C.S. Lewis says it, says it greatly, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union which are meant to go along with it and make up the total union. And he nailed it right there. Another beautiful thing about sex being sacramental is it's seen as a covenant good. When you, see, when you view sex as a covenant good, it sort of becomes like marriage cement, marriage glue. And again, all this stuff is basically coming from the Tim Keller thing. So if you're like hearing it from me tonight and you're just like, man, that's just too much to handle, I recommend going back because he, he impacts it really well here. Sex is a covenant good is marital cement. So to have sex inside a covenant relationship becomes a ceremony where you re-give yourself to each other over and over again. I belong completely and exclusively to you, spouse. I'm emotionally completely and exclusively yours. I'm spiritually completely and exclusively yours, the way we communicate, completely and exclusively yours. And now when we come together in the marriage bed to have sex, we are going to act out with our bodies, which that is, which is true in every other way. 
Again, we see this with baptism and Lord's Supper. It's us saying, God, I belong completely and exclusively to you because you've caused me to be born again. Therefore, I'll act this out through baptism. I'll act this out through, through Lord's Supper. So again, this, this, this helps us understand a lot, of, a lot of things. And one thing it helps us understand in a bit of a practical application is this. Right? You, you hear this phrase a lot. I know at least when we went through the marriage study in our community group, we, we talked about this some, right? This whole illustration, um, women are crockpots, men, men are microwaves, that sort of thing, right? If you guys, like, I heard this, right? Like, I mean, all you got to do is say the word sex, and the guy's like, uh-huh, we're there. And it's like, you say that to a woman, and it's like, well, like, you know, I mean, we, you probably should have said sex, like, at 7 a.m., right? If you're wanting, like, you know, have sex, like, at 10 p.m., right? It's going, we've got to simmer this baby throughout the day, right? You can't just be dropping sex at 9.55 and expecting to rock, like, at 10 p.m., Right, and that's what basically they're trying to get at. Like, right, sex um, between husband and wife. Wife is the crockpot. Men, men is the microwave. So when you understand, like, right, sex is, is sacramental. I think it helps us break down the difference in the way God has wired men, men and women. Like, right, lovemaking isn't merely an act in itself. Right, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. Two become one flesh. Reality is sexual, but it's not merely sexual. So a husband and wife become one flesh emotionally, spiritually, communicatively. So you can't ignore the rest and dive into sex, right? If you as a husband are trying to, quote, lead your wife by not leading her communicatively, the way you communicate, if you're not leading her spiritually, if you're not leading her emotionally, but brother, you're like, you know, you're the the ace in leading her sexually, so to speak, it's like you're not understanding the idea of what a sacrament is, right? That, that all of a sudden couches stuff and just sex is just merely an act within itself. I have a need. We need to have some sex. You need to meet my need. Thanks for meeting my need. I'm out of here. But when you understand sex is sacramental, it starts to switch things around in my mind because then what it does is say, I'm going to approach sex in this way. What I'm going to do is I'm going to lead you. I'm going to outdo you in honor. I'm going to live with you in an understanding way. I'm going to seek to show you honor. I'm going to seek to, to see you as a co-heir in Christ. And as I love on you spiritually, emotionally, in the way that we, that we communicate with each other, I'm going to try to lead. I'm going to try to serve. I'm going to try to show honor in these ways. So then as those things are robust, then I'm going to argue that sex becomes very robust because you are doing full bodily disclosure with what is, what is true in all these other areas. Like, right, I don't want to say it's axiomatic, but, but I mean, that doesn't mean, that's not mean to say that you can't have good sex like if you're not leading those other ways, but if there's an obvious disconnect. I think there's a lack of, a lack of integrity there. Lastly, sex is covenantal, sex is sacramental, sex is eschatological. What do we mean by that? I mean, that's really weird. When I pitched this to my wife, she's like, that's, I have no idea what you're saying. She's like, what did she say? You're like, I, you, maybe you don't know. Like my summary, my paraphrase of all of our conversations was, like you need to explain it really well. I mean, like what's eschatology do? Like right, when I think about eschatology, study of the end times, I think about the crazy guy with like the 37-foot chart where he's talking about all these things, you know, and like moons and stars and people are coming back and there's like this guy in the Middle East who's talking about, I mean, like, right, man, we got all these charts and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, it's like, what does sex have to do with, like, crazy chart guy, right? Sex is eschatological. Like, what's the argument there? Well, look, eschatological, break that word down. Eschatos, it's Greek for last things. That suffix, O-L-O-G-Y, ology, means the idea of the subject of. So eschatology is the subject, the study of last things. So my argument is this, a good vision for a healthy biblical sexuality is we need to understand that God has designed sex to point forward to something inconceivably greater than we could ever possibly imagine. 
Sex was designed by God himself not to just be a means or not just to be an end in itself. Like the goal for a husband, a goal for a wife, the goal for a spouse isn't just to do this. I want to have some good sex. Do you want to have some good sex? Yeah, I want to have some good sex. Well, let's just try to do what it takes to have some good sex. And boom, you have good sex, and it's like, well, that's all there is. My argument is there's something deeper designed in having good sex between a husband and a wife. God has designed sex to point forward to something inconceivably greater, greater than we could ever possibly imagine. Look at that quote by John Piper. Sexual intimacy and sexual climax get their final meaning from what they point to. He's talking eschatology there. The last thing, something greater, something future. Sexual intimacy and sexual climax get their final meaning from what they point to. They point to ecstasies that are unattainable and inconceivable in this life. Just as the heavens are telling the glory of God's power and beauty, so sexual climax is telling the glory of immeasurable delights that we will have with Christ in the age to come. There will be no marriage there, but what marriage meant will be there. And the pleasure of marriage, ten to the millionth power, will be there. What, he, what Piper is saying there is sex is eschatological. The pleasure of sexual climax is eschatological, right? And, and just at the risk of just, I don't think I'm being too blunt. Like, right, when we're, what we're talking about here is an orgasm. Like, the way God has designed a husband and a wife to come together, the idea of sexual climax between a husband and a wife. I, I, my argument is that it's eschatological, right? So we're building a category here, right? Like, don't get freaked out that the pastor's talking about, like, you know, sexual climax and orgasm, that kind of stuff. Like, what we're trying to do is build, build a framework, build a way of thinking to where when a husband and wife come together, it's not do these certain techniques, but it's like, what is the mindset that is to be adopted by a husband and wife when they relate to each other in, in regard to sex? I think it is this. It's, this it's, it's having sex in this big picture, this world, this framework, this house that says there is this futureness to sex. There's this, there's this, this idea of it's pointing some, somewhere. It's pointing something greater than us. It's not just a husband and a wife having sex as an end in itself, but it is, a, it is a means ordained by God that points to something greater. Pleasure from sex now points to something deeper that will be experienced in heaven for all eternity. So when a husband and wife come together and partake of sex, their derived pleasure points to a future pleasure that will be more than they could ever imagine. I love this from Paul, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, and that includes sex. Like, it's not whether you eat or you drink or you pray or you drive or you build or you do work or you have all these sorts of things, but like somehow sex is this one category outside. Doing sex to the glory of God is what God has called us to do. So God's purpose in sex, the sexual climax between a husband and a wife, is that he gives, God gives, a foretaste of the joy, the pleasure, the experience of Christ's spousal love that believers will know and experience for all eternity Sexual climax is good. It's not an end in itself, but a God-ordained means that points to something greater. Sexual climax is a tiny thumbnail scratch of what it will be for believers to know the spousal love of Christ for all eternity. Sexual climax is a tiny thumbnail scratch of what it will be for believers to know the spousal love of Christ for all eternity. 
So this being true, spouses are to serve one another during sex, and they are to see each other as co-heirs who will know this experience for, for all of life. Now, I'm going to try to explain this here, and I give my wife permission to like raise her hand and say you're doing a horrible job because I've tried to explain this to her several times, and like I think most, like probably what, every time except for the last one, you like it's just sort of started getting like, I, I understand like this is sort of weird, like right? So like I just said when you have an orgasm, it's heavenly. It points to something else greater than anything that we could ever experience or know here. So when I come to the sexual partnership between husband and wife, when, when a spouse comes together with a spouse, what I'm to do is adopt the lens of 1 Peter 3.7. What I'm going to do is I want to understand my spouse because that's, that is geared towards men, but I've, the reverse is also true. We're to understand each other. We're to show honor to each other. We are co-heirs in this marriage covenant. And so like the mindset, I think, is this. What, what we should not do is come to that sexual climax, to that, to that place, and just simply roll over and go, man, baby, the whole time I was doing this, I was thinking about the heavens and seeing the face of Christ. Like, well, well I was like, we're not supposed to probably do that. Like, we're not supposed to be, like, having sex and thinking about Jesus, right? What I'm not arguing is, like, in something really twisted, like, we're having sex with Jesus. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Like, right, we're not supposed to go over and, like, baby, that was eschatological, man, that was phenomenal, you know? But what I'm saying is it adopts a mindset. I think the mindset looks like this. So when we come together as a husband and wife to have sex with each other, what you do is you look at this woman who's fully disclosed in front of you. You look at that man who's fully disclosed physically in front of you. And what you say is, this person is a co-heir in Christ with me. This person has been bought by the blood of Christ just as much as I've been bought by the blood of Christ. And just as much as she's been bought by the blood of Christ and I've been bought by the blood of Christ, I, my desire is to serve her in such a way to where she will somehow be drawn closer to be able to taste what she's going to taste for eternity. Because one day, you're going to die, Christ is going to come back, and that marriage covenant will dissolve because in marriage there is no giving, in heaven there's no giving in marriage or taking in marriage. Marriage is a parable that points to something greater. It points to the spousal love of Christ, the joy, the ecstasy, the pure pleasure we're going to have as men and women standing and worshiping before the face of Christ forever and ever and ever. And my argument is this. The one tiny thumbnail scratch of the pure, ecstatic, mind-blowing pleasure that God has given us where we just taste it for a fleeting moment is sexual climax in marriage. So if my wife is going to be able to experience this in eternity, your husband, if he's going to be able to experience this in eternity, it is good and right to adopt the mindset that says this, in this sexual act that we're about to gauge into, I'm going to do everything within my possibilities to outdo you in serving you and showing you honor so that you can get to the place where you get that little foretaste of heaven. I want to serve you to you so you can have, enjoy, partake of, have the pleasures of sexual climax. Because when it comes and it's fleeting, it's there, it was good. It was short. But there's something that's going to be so much greater for all eternity. That short burst of goodness, that short burst of joy, that short burst of pleasure is... Is going to be what it's going to be like to bask in the glory of the Son of God forever and ever. So the question becomes, like, why would I not want to serve my wife in that way? And vice versa, why would she not want to serve me in that way? 
Why would any spouse want to come into the marriage, the marriage bed and go, you're a co-heir in Christ with me, and I don't give a crap. You need to serve me. You need to bend toward me. You need to adjust towards me. It ought not to be. And adopting that mindset that sex is eschatological brings us to that place where we serve the other. I wrote this down. It'll be one of the last things we say. A right application of sex, seeing it as eschatological, I think is this. I think I put it in your notes there. A right way of seeing this is adopting this eschatological view of sex corrects the me-centered attitude of sex and it realigns the sex act from an end in itself where I'm to be served by my spouse to a means by which I can serve and lead my spouse to experience just a fine foretaste of heaven on earth. You know, not to get all romantic comedy on you. Man, maybe it's heaven on earth being in love with you. It's like we're, we're shooting for something bigger. Like we're, we're, we're talking about a God-ordained way that we can experience, I think, what we'll experience for all, for all eternity. Two concluding thoughts will be done. Notice that focusing on the wives' sex frees up the married couple for the what? So this wasn't 19 sex techniques to make your bedroom sizzle tonight, right? It wasn't, it wasn't make sure you have sex with your wife in this way. Wife, it wasn't make sure he does this to you tonight. Husband, it wasn't make sure your wife only wears the things you want her to wear so that way you can have a really awesome time. It's debunking those things, and it is helping us understand the why. When we understand the why, it frees us up for the what. It frees you to really, to enjoy really good sex so long as it does not defile the marriage bed. If you want a really good re- working of that, of what does that mean to not defile the marriage bed, I'd, I'd recommend to you the Piper book and the Kostenberger book. You can look down there, Hebrews 13, 4 and 5 is where, where you get that from. The last idea, sex is covenant explains why any other form of sex is wrong. So sex in any other way is outside of God's good boundaries. So ultimately, all sex outside of marriage violates some or all of these three things. Fornication, adultery, pornography, masturbation, homosexuality, lustful fantasies, incest, on and on. And that's where, that's where this, little, this little one comes in, okay? So we'll take that home and read it. So this is Kostenberger's book, and he unpacks it on a practical note where he works through this, right? The question arises, are there any boundaries for sex that mark what is or is not acceptable based on a Christian theology of sex and general biblical morality. He lists 10 things that are said, like, these things are just off limits. Like, we don't get the privilege of thinking this way because God's word says so. The theological confession gives me a vision that these things are wrong, so we are not going to practice these things. But then he says, beyond this, the following general principles will serve as a helpful guideline as a husband and wife consider what is or is not acceptable to God with regard to sexual Activity. I put that before you. The conclusion is phenomenal. It really wraps up a lot of what, of what we were saying here. Right, so this isn't just merely understanding why we do this. It is that, but understanding the why also gives us a biblical framework for why then we can look at the world around us and go, these people don't have a biblical framework. These people don't know Jesus. Because they don't know Jesus, they don't know God's word because they don't know God's word. They don't have a biblical framework. And so what they do is they elevate the sex act to an end in itself, right? I mean, isn't that sort of what it boils down to when you talk to your people, your, your friends? What they're doing is they're constantly coming to you, and what they're doing is they're making that one-night stand, that fleeing, that night with the prostitute, the sweet porn they've been watching 
all of this, whatever you want to put it into, category, all these, all these things that are falling outside, what it is is just in and itself. How can I be served? How can I be served? How can I be served? How is it going to adjust to me? How is it going to adjust to me? And how is it going to adjust to me? And what we do as bearers of light, we bring the gospel to bear in this as we live outrightly a healthy biblical sexuality and as we breathe gospel truth through that by being an example for our neighbors, for our family, for our coworkers, et etc., et cetera, in this realm.